This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 541, and the quote of the day is, never forget where you come from. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here. Thanks for tuning in. Episode 541. Hope all is well in your world. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. And I'm really excited about this conversation today. And this conversation is with David Walsikinen, and he is from the band The Hooters, who are from Philadelphia, my hometown. And for those of you who aren't familiar with David's work or the Hooters. They've been around since 1980. They've had major commercial success uh, all around the world. And again, they're from Philadelphia. So they were always, to me, like the hometown band. And they always felt like, to me, like they were they were this small town band, but they weren't. They had major, major international success, uh, but they were always the hometown heroes for sure. And arguably one of the greatest drummers to ever come out of the Philadelphia area. So I am super excited to have him on the podcast. And I'm not going to wait any longer. I'm going to get right into it with the one and only David Wasikinen. David, how are you, my man? Nick, I'm, I'm very well, thank you. Very well on this nice rainy Philly day. Uh, <laughs> but uh, good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I always love, I always love having a fellow Philadelphian on. It always, uh, it always gives, it's like a piece of home for me, but then, but then you realize how many things you have, uh, you know, yeah. you have in common. And coincidentally, I was, uh, I was watching some videos. Uh, I was watching some Hooters videos, and the one uh, opens up, and it's like it, it, the opening credit. It starts at the Exton drive-through, which is like that's like oh. right. That's like right where oh. I grew up. Oh no way! You're kidding yeah. me. Well, that thing is, uh, you know, to this day that that one's very close to our hearts because um, it was our first. Like, I mean, we had on that record, "Nervous Night." We had, you know. Back in the day, there were four hit top 40 singles back in that day. And I think Day by Day might have been the the uh, biggest charting song. But And We Danced was quite big. And to this day, you still hear it in supermarkets. And and I remember doing that video. And we had, I think all our parents were in that video. My dad's in the popcorn stand. And my mom's in the video. Andy King's uh, dad's in the video. So it's really near and dear to our heart. And the Exton Drive-In, which was there for a long, long time. Uh, we, we added, you know, now people can go on YouTube and see when we tell them what a drive-in theater is, they can, right. you know, they can look it up and see what that's all about. But, you know, that's your old hood, huh? Yeah. I mean, I grew up, so I, I grew up in Coatesville. Um, oh yeah. No, I just drove through Coatesville the other day on my way back from Lancaster. Oh, did, I got yep. lost. Yeah. You'll go right <laughs> through. Yeah. So I grew up, uh, I grew up in like the outskirts of Coatesville. Uh, uh-huh. and then, but we had, my brother and I owned an Italian restaurant there in Exton for, for quite some time. So. Wow. I wish yeah. I would have known. I'm a big fan of yeah. the Italian food. <laughs> I wish I would have known. You know, I bet it was great. It was. It was. We still have. My, I grew up in the restaurant business, so like since the seventies. Yeah. So we still have one. There's still one in Thorndale that's been there since oh. uh, since seventy four. So. Oh yeah. well, I will have to check it out for sure. Well, let me know it's when you know. Let me know when you're going. I will. Sure indeed, I will. <laughs> I will for sure. Hey, hey, so listen, it's a big day here in Philadelphia. Our Philadelphia Eagles are playing the Giants tonight, so everybody's on pins and needles. And yeah. I don't know if you're a big Eagles fan, but uh, I am. I, I'm, 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 I am the, uh, the, the Hooters are still touring and playing after 40 years, and we have a football pool amongst our crew. And um, my wife, who happens to be a part of it, um, we oh, every week we're making our picks, and we've been doing it for years. And uh, tonight our birds are in action, you know, so yeah. who uh, – we look better than they have. But the, <laughs> but the NFC East is just horrible. Looking. So horrible. Everyone. So horrible. You know, everyone. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, I feel like it's like no a race to the bottom. To <laughs> no one wants to win. It's like, come on, guys. <laughs> Someone's got to go into the playoffs, you know. Right, and, right. I mean, we had such high hopes, you know, with Nick, uh, with, with uh, Carson Wentz and, and after the Super Bowl. But, but, but Nick, honestly, after winning a Super Bowl and you, you've been an Eagles fan your entire life. You know what it's like. We've never had a Super Bowl. So in 2018, when we won it, it was great. And I know there were a lot of fans that made deals with the devil. Like, if you just give us this one. Just one. I won't just give me be, one. Uh, give me one. 
But honestly, that was a lie because we all went on one and another after you get one. So of course, but yeah. So so uh, enough of the Eagles. But right. you know, <laughs> but I'll be watching all day, and uh, it's Eagles Day, if, we, if you will. <laughs> I, I tell my wife all the time. I'm like, I was at the '08 World Series when the Phillies won, and I got uh, to see the Eagles yeah. win the Super Bowl. I'm like, wow. I can yeah. I can die a happy man. I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Oh no way. I you know I watch. The 08 World Series, I was living in San Diego at the time, and I remember um, when we won, and, and if, if, you know, people that don't follow baseball, like we follow, like with the World Series, especially when our team was in it, you know, that game was postponed, yeah, right? Th- yep. There was a game that was postponed, actually, to get us, was it to get us into the World Series? No, one was, of those games were postponed. No, it was Game it was 5 of the World game. Series, yeah. Game 5, exactly. It was so postponed. they played... They yeah. played to the seventh inning, and then and then we yeah. or they played it to the stopped. sixth, and then we all had to come right. back two days later and watch the seventh, eighth, yeah. and ninth. Yeah, and I watched that on TV, and I remember it was like in two thousand and eight. That was a very pivotal moment in for Philadelphia, um, in a lot of ways. Not just you know the, you know Phillies won the World Series, but the, I remember coming. It was shortly after that that I moved back to Philadelphia. I think it was two years after that, and the city. It was just changed. I mean, at one time you're in the restaurant business. Uh, there was a guy named Neil Stein who had some restaurants and he was always being fined because he would put tables outside. And at one time you couldn't do that in the city. Um, there was some sort of city ordinance that would keep you from having your, um, your, you know, tables outside. And then when I came back, you know, that, that all changed. And it was just seemed around 2008, the city got this completely, it was like a, uh, you know, uh, um, complete like attitude changes like you know because we're always like on uh, the stepsister uh, uh, of the of new york you know a new mm-hmm. york city it was that little city that could and and and, and it was a little bit of a knock on it but it, it the attitude changed you know and mm-hmm. I, maybe it had something to do with the world series who knows but all i know is when i came back it sure seemed a lot different than when i left because i left the city in 19 i moved to la in 1990 and i was there for 20 years and it was great when I came back, yeah. you know, and I stayed. Yeah. I stayed. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely the the vibe in the city has changed. I w- so let's talk about that. Like, let's talk about, um, let's rewind the clock a little bit. When when you were coming up, so you grew up in where, Levittown? I grew up in Levittown. Yeah. yeah. I uh, yeah. I moved to, I guess I was about mm, 20 years old when I moved out of Levittown into the Philadelphia area and things like that. When things started happening with the Hooters, Um but yeah, Levittown was my home. It was actually where the Hooters first started playing. The little bars. There was a bar called Maddie's Place, and there were, on Warner Avenue in Levittown, there was a place called Vernon's. And we used to do. It didn't call it a residency back then, but we were playing there every week to kind of hone what we were doing. And he was very cool. He was a cool bar owner. He didn't care if we played our songs as long as people were coming in. Mm-hmm. So we were able to do that six days a week. Um, oh wow! We were even there. We were even playing the night that John Lennon lost his life. We were playing in that uh, uh, in that in Vernon's that evening, and I remember, you know, TV. They had a TV in the corner, and there the Monday Night Football was on, and and we were playing at Vernon's, and uh, we I think we finished out the night. We were all sick, <laughs> huh. and we played, but such an awful night. But yeah. but um, but we played there all the time, and that's where we we started, and and then. Um, early 80s we started doing every monday night at a place called grendel's lair on fifth and south and we used to play there on monday nights i think the first night there were 20 people there and as i think two months after two months of that you know you couldn't even get in the door it was a real special time for us starting out there they're always the best times you know you you play you're you you've started a band and played successfully you know if you look back now and you think about those early days when you're really toughing it out they all seem so, it, you know, it, it's a, they were great times. Don't you mm-hmm. think? Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of my favorite gigs of all time was in a garage that we played yeah. at, at right. it was a graduation party and we were like, this is going to be horrible. And it ended up being like one of the best, one of the best nights <laughs> I ever had playing it. music, you know? Yeah. You never forget it. I mean, exactly. Uh, I, I was just reading, um, Kenny Jones, the drummer that played with uh, the faces mm-hmm. and uh, small faces. I've been reading Let's uh, Let the Good Times Roll. And uh, he was playing with The Who in 1982. And uh, 81, 82, we, we, we opened for The Who, believe it or not, <laughs> which was amazing for us. Wow. Uh, and I, I was in my early 20s. 
and <clears throat> we opened for the Who. It was the uh, the Who, Santana, the Clash, and the Hooters. And I remember it was the first time I ever, you know, I mean, I've been to stadiums, but never played in a stadium. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was amazing times. Uh, you know, that one always sticks out to me, too. From playing Little Vernon's, we're playing the JFK Stadium, which was nuts. That's crazy. You know, and did you? Yeah. When you when you guys like playing at a stadium like that, uh, like, I mean, I've never played in the stadium, but I've played in, you know, large arenas, like 20, 30,000 mm-hmm. seat arenas. Right. I always felt a little disconnected from the crowd yes at that yeah at that level like i i was a big fan of like you know or still i'm like four or five six seven fifteen hundred seat clubs even up to like yeah. three thousand mm-hmm. but like once i feel right. like once they get bigger you start to yeah. the bigger they get the more just disconnected i started exactly. to feel anyway yeah i, I guess it, it it depends on the the <laughs> this is weird it depends on the stadium <laughs> right <laughs> but honestly <laughs> But I remember uh, the first I, I, I um, well, the, I, the one we played with the who was just so overwhelming because I felt like I was in a dream. It was like how this happened to me. And I'm with this band that like, you know, we were messing around with ska and reggae and we're opening for the who. So it, I, I, by the time it was uh, before I could even think about it, it was over. And, um, you know, we walked off the stage. And matter of fact, that same night, we had a gig in Richmond, Virginia. You know, you're coming up, you, you take gigs, and we opened for The Who, and as I was driving off, I watched Kenny Jones and Pete Towns and Roger uh, Daltrey walk in, walking onto the stage. Uh, Entwistle was alive then, too, and they walked on the stage, and we were leaving to go to Richmond. But at that one, um, it, it, you know, we were talking a little bit about in-ears and, 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 and how you hear your music uh, on stage. Um um, I, I I think that had something to do with making it a little smaller for me. Mm-hmm. I, I think I mentioned to you that before we took on with the podcast that the Hooters happened to be the first band to open Live Aid in 1985. And Marty Garcia, Future Sonics in-ears, the ear monitors, was experimenting with, you know, building them and making, perfecting them. And myself and Willie Wilcox, who played with Todd Rudgren, were his basic his guinea pigs on this. And I I thought, you know what, when I play Live Aid, I'm going to put these in-ears in because it'll allow me to hear what's happening a mile across the stage. Because you know, that's what we're talking about, that disconnect with that. You know, it's not so much, you can't hear what's happening across the stage, but I noticed immediately when I was wearing my in-ears, even though the quality isn't what it is today, um, I could hear what the keyboard player was playing. So it made a difference and it made the hundred thousand seat venue smaller for me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, 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 and I, I, I mean, you know, you always look out and, um, I mean, there's nothing like it. You know, fortunately I used to carry a little video camera around with me when I toured with the Hooters <clears throat> and, you know, one show in particular that we did years later, we opened for Prince in Switzerland at about a 40,000 seat soccer stadium. And I remember having my camera with me and I, it was, it was a big giant camera before they got real small. And that venue in itself, I remember I, I, for some reason I wasn't wearing in-ears because I guess production and time wouldn't allow it. And I was using just a, a regular monitor and it was brutal. <laughs> it was really brutal. Fortunately, since we were playing so much, you know, you played in a band, it's like you start connecting with movement and right, it right. wasn't like as tight as usual, but for somehow our performance was good, but good enough. And um, but you do you do miss that, you know, there's nothing like a, like a thousand seat venue. You know, mm-hmm. I play a lot of those venues in Germany where the Hooters play a lot these days. So that's kind of a, a normal venue for us. And I really particularly like that. Yeah, it has. It's just but I like and I like going to shows. You know, going to see yeah. music at that at that at that yes. level, like a thousand, two thousand yeah. seat, oh. like they're great. The sounds usually yeah. good, you know, because like you right. look at you look at uh, a stadium or you look at a a um a big arena or something like that. They're not really made for music. No. You know? Oh God, I remember I went one in particular. I remember going to uh, I went to a show at Veterans Stadium, which isn't there anymore. When filled up, well, you remember Veterans Stadium, so I went right. to a show there, and I, I I even think it was the Who. I went because I, I got to know Simon Phillips a little bit and I went to, uh, you know, I went to the show and I remember thinking the sound was God awful because it was just bouncing off the, 
you know, whatever it was, cavernous. And, you know, there were kind of, there was still, it was still, I forget what year it was, but, you know, they're gotten better with it. But I remember thinking, man, this is terrible. It's it's not the greatest environment for 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 seeing a show. Like I, I like I, I think I went to see the Stones once, and I went with a friend in, in San Diego, a Qualcomm Stadium stadium, and I remember sitting way back there, and you know, Mick and Keith looked like about an inch tall. Right. You know, it was bad. <laughs> you know, it wasn't great. You know? yep. But it was part. You know, I I was there. It was one of those things where you could say, hey, I was there, and um. But, you know, as far as an, a, a, an experience of hearing something fantastic, it wasn't the case. I think I think my brother went to that Stone show at, at, at like there was a uh, I forget what tour it was, but it was at the vet and there was the stage like extended out into the middle of the crowd. Yes. and Like they walked across. Yes. Yeah. He, my brother was at that. Yes. show. I, I just remember him say, talking about being at that show. Yeah. 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 You know, they love coming to. uh um, they love coming to Philadelphia. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, make for some reason, Mick Jagger just loves Philadelphia. I matter of fact, I met Mick Jagger in 1982 at the who show. I got this picture that I, I post on Facebook of, of Mick Jagger and I having a beer and I was like 20, 23 years old. It was really cool. That's you know, awesome. he came and brought his daughter. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up awesome. on that stuff. So yeah. It's killer. So when you were, I remember reading something that I guess a pivotal point for you was, was seeing the Beatles on, on the tonight show. Right. And yeah, well, Ed Sullivan, it was Ed Sullivan Sullivan show. Uh, Yeah. Ed Sullivan show. I saw the Beatles. I had the flu. I still remember the room was spinning and everything stopped when they came on stage. It was like, Oh my God. You know, I mean, just amazing, uh, amazing seeing them, you know, changed my life. And probably, you know, look, that's a story I hear from a lot of guys my age that play music that, you know, saw that show. But that's that, what I was going to ask next, you. A lot of people yeah. cite that as as like a pivotal yeah. point in their career. What was what was right. it about that performance that that was so awe inspiring? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, I didn't realize it, but there, whatever Brian Epstein was doing to market the Beatles back in the day, there was a buzz. And my parents being immigrants from Finland coming over, they they were kind of like, you know, they they did barely spoke English, let alone read English. And they but somehow they got it that it was very important for all of us to watch this TV program. So we watched the Ed Sullivan show. And, you know, again, and all the kids in my neighborhood, like uh, my friends that, you know, I think the following week I was my friend who played guitar. Uh, you know, I was trying to find, you know, I wanted to play the guitar when I first started. But my hands, like, I don't know if the teacher thought I was going to be a big pain in the ass, but he said, no, you're not going to make it as a guitar player. But I could play drum. I could play a drum beat mm-hmm. when my buddy who had a snare drum in his house. So next week, the next week we start playing immediately. And it was all because of the Beatles. And then any time any band was on Ed Sullivan, I mean, every week we would tune in to see who was playing the Rolling Stones or Dave Clark Five. I mean, you listen to those Dave Clark Five records these days. As a matter of fact, I was listening to Little Steven's Garage yesterday, and I couldn't believe, and like, those tracks were so great. And, you know, there's always this controversy of like, whether it was a Dave Clark or Bobby Graham. Bobby Graham was the session guy in England, mm-hmm. um, played on a lot of records that later on I was so for years. I thought it was this drummer that was in the band. And it was Bobby Graham. I was like, <laughs> oh, man, I didn't know that, you know. Right. So um, but but I listened to his records and, you know, more than anything as a drummer, the Dave Clark five. Now I listen to the Beatles stuff and I'm in awe. But as a drummer, when I heard the Dave Clark Five as a young age, because it was so pronounced, I was like, oh, my God, that's that's awesome. But I didn't realize that Mike Smith and Dave Clark and those guys were listening to American R&B and the music that they were hearing from American radio and inspiring them. And they took the British take on it, which mm-hmm. was unbelievable. And it, sp- it inspired me as a drummer. Yeah. Yeah. At a young age. Yeah. It's just uh, – yeah, I, I just – watching you know like you can go on youtube and watch that performance and it's great it's the beatles you know yeah. uh, but yeah. but m- so many people talk about how it was it was just completely earth shattering and and made people want to play the drums and and they uh, you know a lot of people really credit ringo for everyone playing playing match grip too right um right like and, before- and, and and to the detriment 
<laughs> some teachers in the world were like, no, you don't play that way. <laughs> right. I mean, right. I remember teachers like, you know, that were saying like, no, you got to learn you know, traditional grip, you know, because I, I think, you know, at the time I was taking drum lessons and my teacher was more of a, he wasn't a Beatles guy. He was a jazz guy. So he was kind of like, oh no, he hold, he would always say, he holds his sticks wrong. <laughs> really, we got that. He holds his sticks wrong. But Ringo, in, in a lot of ways, yeah. I mean, and the cool thing about Ringo is that he was kind of a left. He was a lefty and would lead those fills off with his left. And he would play a right-handed kit. So his fills were not not really unorthodox, but they had a. He, it, it lent itself to his feel. I mean, what an amazing drummer to this day. If you look up, the greatest thing about YouTube is that you could go back on YouTube and you see videos of Ringo and, you know, God, I remember he's this, when he was down in Washington, D.C., there's a great video where they're playing. He had to jump off the drums and spin the drum set riser around and he jumps back on the drums and he starts playing. And he was really aggressive when he was young, you know, like laying into it. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it, it's super cool, you know, and. Yeah, you know, I, I, the, the Beatles, and look, anytime you heard they were going to be on any program, um, you were, uh, like, I know I was, like, dying to see it. And, and nowadays, just the other day when I, we visited my, um, my wife's um, cousin, and, and he had a channel where it was all Beatles stuff, and there were a bunch of uh, videos of the Beatles playing Ready, Steady, Go, the Top of the Pops. I mean, when I played it, I remember playing the top of the pops twice with the Hooters and I remember thinking, Oh my God, when I walked in, cause I already knew uh, what the top of the pops meant and right. what it was. And, and then later on, we, we actually did the show with Paul McCartney, which was nuts, you know, cause we were all big Beatles fans mm -hmm. and we walk in, we hear, we hear a Beatles song playing. It's like, Oh, it's, it's Paul McCartney. And right. he knows who we are, which was really weird. That's so, that would make my uh, head explode. Oh, it made my head explode. Of course, Eric and I walked into where he was doing his rehearsal for his performance, and he says hello to us. And we looked like, who's he talking to? And then we realized <laughs> he was talking to us, and we had a song called Satellite that was in the top 20 in England. So, you know, he comes over, and we're both like, oh, no, don't – like, we wanted him to come over, but at the same time, like, oh, no, he's going to come talk to us. Right. And he, and he did, and we hung out with him all day. Hey, Nick, I'll send you a photo. I have a photo of him from that day where I'm holding – the neck of his guitar and he's playing with the, with the right hand. And it was the most marvelous day. That I was one of those it. days I'll never. And uh, we hung out, but you know, to this day, I'm still a huge Beatles fan. And um, you know, I can't get enough of that stuff and the stories behind the recordings. And, and you know, when you get to meet a Beatle, I was right. fortunate enough to, I never met Ringo, but I've, you know, I, met George Harrison and uh, Paul McCartney and a guitar player that I used to play with Rusty Anderson is George is Paul's guitar player now, oh, cool. which is just nuts to me. It's like, man, you're playing with Paul McCartney. Right. And uh, he's, yeah, he pinches himself every day. What's you know? have you, what's your take on the, uh, on the Bernard Purdy Beatles thing? <laughs> um, well, here's the weird thing. And I know Bernard too, and he's the sweetest guy in the world. I mean, I think that Bernard, Bernard played on something that was kind of like a remix. And I, I just think that maybe like, I, look, I'm not going to speak for him, but I think he was a little confused. <laughs> like right. uh, it's happened with a couple of the drummers. I mean, if you get called in to do some session stuff and you're cutting drums, sometimes, you know, when producers are like moving tracks around, you don't know what you did. I mean, Bernard, um, might have played on something that was like a, a like a remix of, of something because somebody actually explained this to me because I as I love I, I I love chatting with Bernard Purdy I love when I'm in, at an event with him and he's always so genuine and very nice but I never understood that Beatle thing I mean he's played on so many great hits it's like well why do you need to you know go there with the Beatles right but right you know I think he's a little confused that just I think he's a little confused with that I mean that happens it, it would age. <laughs> Hopefully that don't happen to me. But right. And I would could. imagine that like after like he's already so committed to saying it now, it's like, well, you don't yeah. want to backtrack now, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. I was I was at an event where he was uh, doing a little clinic and, you know, he's doing his shuffle and he was talking about it. And of course, everybody starts asking him about the Beatle thing. And and he says, look, I, I don't want to talk about it. But then he starts talking about it. And that's the worst thing you can do. You know, it's like, if he doesn't want to talk about, don't, 
And yeah. sometimes, you know, he has to justify that. And I always feel bad for him at that point because I, I, because he's done such brilliant work. I mean, you, you know, stuff he's done with Steely Dan and the hum, like I was a huge fan of, uh, I don't know if any of your listeners can find, there's a band called the hummingbirds that he did with Bob Tench. It was Max Middleton was playing keyboards. These are all members of Jeff Beck's group mm-hmm. after Jeff did Rock ready. Um, and the orange album, there's amazing playing on that record. And Bernard Purdy is revolutionary in his drumming. Um, he plays amazing. And I remember that record had a lot, uh, he had so much influence on me because I, I forget what year it was. It might've been six, 70, seven, 1975, 76. And I remember listening to that and going, Oh my God, because he was doing cool stuff with the rim of the snare. And he was just playing so beautifully in the record, which is called, called the band was called the hummingbirds. Uh, but there, I think there's a couple hummingbirds, but it's the one with Max Middleton and uh, Bernard Purdy and Bob Tench. I don't it's know amazing. if I ever listened to that. Yeah, I mean, I'll see, I'll see. It's one of those records that I think was like it's hard to find. It was discontinued, but I'm going to look on Spotify because it seems like you can find anything there. I know, and I'm going to say it. I'll send it to you. It's very, very cool. That's- and I just remember Bernard was just so he was on off the ma- musical map at the time with his creativity. He was playing such amazing uh, feels. And then, you know, so, you know, then again, so, you know, when I hear that Beatles stuff, I want to go, why? <laughs> yeah. You know, like you yeah. did great stuff. Why did you want to do that? But sometimes it's not enough for some people, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You you yeah. mentioned you can find anything on Spotify. I'd be interested to hear what your take is on on digital music versus you know because yeah. you know for a large portion of your career you made money by selling records and yes. that that whole thing is has obviously turned on its head and and now you see everyone touring a lot more, including yeah. you know Steely Dan. Like Steely Dan never toured uh, right because well, they could just sell records we, right because now we make our money from touring and you know like. I, I look at my tour dates for 2020 and I'm like, oh, great. You know, I mean, our, our biggest market for us is in Germany and I'm there for seven weeks touring. And that's great. That's great for the, you know, revenue and things like that. And we sell records there. And we, you know, as far as my take on that, that was inevitable to happen. That's one of those things that and the only, you know, what's been slow to come is the business side of it. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, and you know, nowadays, you know, there's something called performance, performance royalties. And, 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 you know, that's something that's like trying to catch up. They're they're a little behind the eight ball and catching up for artists. Like, you know, it's played with bands. You know, if you played on the records, you know, they collect for you. And if you're in a, an organization that does that, you you can, you can collect your, your, your money that, you you know, that they call it a performance royalty. So, and that's, come around and you know so but, d- and let's can we can we talk about that? that can we talk about that yeah, quickly? Sure. I, just yeah, so people so. understand exactly what that means so if you get hired to play right. on someone's record if you're not in the band right. and you're just a hired gun before yes, yeah. they would say here's 500 bucks and you're done right yes and now yeah, but there's a thing called a non-featured artist and a featured artist a non-featured artist will see is if you're the session guy on the record Technically, if it's done right, you're supposed to see a performance royalty paid to uh, from that record to whatever union or whatever you're part of is, is a 5% royalty rate. But if you're a featured artist, that's a different thing. That's actually you're a part of the band. And that's, you know, that's deemed by and a lot of times it's deemed by your discography, your credit people like look in whoever's paying out that money. Um, and you know, sometimes it lends itself to a little bit of a battle with the band because, um, you know, and whoever's adminning those kinds of royalties, but you know, if you're a member of the band and you're playing on the records in theory, you're supposed to get paid for those performances and that's a higher rate, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, I think that's good to know in Nick. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, cause I think it that is. it is, I think that a lot of times, uh, you know, drummers don't know that. Drummers, yeah. There's so many drummers that I try to educate because, you know, uh, uh, because of my look, and this is no fault of like the Hooters because they, they learn as they go as well. But, you know, with the digital music, like songwriters get their money from songwriting royalties. And then uh, there's mechanical royalties and these things called performance royalties. 
And there's a lot of drummers don't realize that if they were a part of a band um, and they played on the records, there is a royalty that is allotted or supposed to be paid to them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, you know, at one point when you look at, cause I've had friends of mine that were ahead of, ahead of me on this end of it said, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, I was a part of that. It's so it has X amount of plays and sold X amount of copies. And, and, um, they started looking into, well, where's my money? And then they found there's a thing called sound exchange that, which actually, if you're signed up to that, you know, you could, you could look into where, where, where is my end of the deal? And, um, I find it, uh, refreshing at the same time, it's a little daunting and it's sometimes it's really hard to go up to your, your, uh, the leaders of your band or whoever and say, Hey, wait a minute. Uh, <laughs> where's my end of the deal? Yeah. You know, it's not always easy. It's yeah. not easy. Especially in a competitive market where, you know, oh. if you, if you have a big artist who has hired guns in the band and you're fighting yeah. for royalties and they're going to say, well, I can get someone else to do this that, you know, yeah, well, that that's, that comes down. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's something that, you know, um, you, you hope that the integrity of the group, uh, whoever's taking care of it is someone that will really look at it and, you know, Hey, look, you know, it, it really does come down to that a lot of times, which is, you know, uh, there's, and you get an arbitrary, arbitrary, uh, to get involved. And there's always these like things that, but it's really important. I think that to, uh, if you're a drummer and you've been in a band or a guitar player or something like that, you know, if you brought value to whatever was released, I think you should go and get what's yours. That's what I believe. So what about, I know the idea of like, of, of negotiating for points on the record. If, if, you know, yeah. if I hired you to play on my record and I'd say, Hey, David, I'd give you whatever, 500 bucks a track yeah. to play on my record. And you say, well, I want points on the record, meaning I want a percentage right. of the overall sales of the record. Right. Right. Um, Take the money. <laughs> yeah. But, but the other side of it, uh, so are you saying that when someone goes in a, in a hired gun position that they should be negotiating for points? Or are you saying that legally they get a percentage of that as a performance royalty or does that have to be negotiated in their contract? Well, no, it does. I don't think, well, I believe it doesn't get, have to be negotiated. Some people will go negotiate in their contract, but I don't believe it has to be because basically if it's done correctly, there is that non-featured artist percentage that goes to uh, the AMF or to uh, or whatever um, music um, entity that is responsible for that. In mm -hmm. my case, it's the union for non-featured artists. I remember I explained what the difference between non-featured and featured artists. But the non-featured artists, you know, there should be that 5% for the session guy, regardless if he signed any contract. Right. You know, that's there. You know, for instance, if, you know, I know guys that have gone in and done records with uh, with artists that were basically um, they helped create the album with the artist. And then they went back because they weren't in the band. They they received in their case, they thought they only received five percent of that of that um, of that uh, performance royalty. But if they were in that person's band, they would get. Um, I, I think that an equal share, I think it's actually an equal share of that performance royalty hmm. because you're a member of the band, right? Because you're a member of the band, right? You know? And so if you're a session guy, you're basically, um, that's where session guys auto, um, a guys that were on top of it. I have a friend of mine. I don't think they mind me saying this, but you know, the Carlos Alomar who played with David Bowie for a long time, he was a, in a band and in the band and also, um, kind of walking both sides of the fence but he, a friend of mine said every two months he saw him at the at the amf picking up a check right. <laughs> you know, so and he was walking out with big envelopes it was wonderful that's good that's good <laughs> yeah it's good you know he's top on top of the business side i mean that's you know not many musicians have managers or agents and stuff like that. they have to fend for themselves to go out and and you know, make sure. But you know, if, if you're anything like me, I'm I've been a lifer, man. I've 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 took five years. I think we talked about it for a while. I worked in the digital music space myself, and I was very lucky to be at the right place at the right time. Came from a session, working doing a session for a music attorney, ended up you know working within the digital music space. But um, but other than that, I've been playing music, making music. Uh, when I'm not playing with the Hooters, it's, I've worked with some other artists playing on some records. But, you know, you have to really work hard to keep it rolling. I mean, mm -hmm. 
drummers especially, man, you have to spread your bed and you have to, you know, um, it, it's not easy. And, and, and then collecting is another story because a lot of us don't have managers or agents. The artist usually has the manager or agent, but, you know, um, but like I said, there's organizations now like Sound Exchange and other organizations that go out and collect neighbor and rights money and things like that that are really important. Hey, are you tired of coded drum heads chipping and flaking after only a few hours of play? Tired of premature denning and breakage? Well, welcome to the next generation of coded drum heads, Evan's new UV coating technology. They're made with proprietary inks and a new UV-like curing process, so these heads are able to withstand strikes, brush strokes, and rim shots better than anything on earth. That means you get to play heads that sound and look fresh for longer, and you can spend less time tuning and modifying and changing heads. They're available in one-ply and two-ply, as well as Evan's proprietary hydraulic and EMAD systems. Check them out by going to evansdrumheads.com. Do you know why when you tune a drum, you're supposed to go diagonal across the drum? That's because your drum is flawed. I hate to break it to you, but your drum is flawed because of the way that the edge is. The typical edge doesn't allow the drum head to sit on it properly. So when you tighten down one lug, it causes the drum head to shift and pop up on the other side. That's why you have to tune it diagonally. But now with the new Sonicleer edge from Mapex, that's a thing of the past. The Sonicleer Edge allows the head to sit flush, so it promotes ease of tuning, increased shell resonance, and optimal tonal clarity. So you're going to have to do a lot less work and get a lot greater sound. To learn more about the Sonicleer Edge, go to mapexdrums.com. What's your opinion for people who may be in a position where they are, you know, a session musician or a hired gun and maybe don't have the business acumen or don't necessarily understand how performance rights and mechanical rights and all that stuff work. Cause you're obviously, you're not going to go get an agent as a, as a sideman, right. Or like no, maybe if you're in that's the, not worth it. right, it's not worth the money for, it's not worth it for yeah. the artist or for the manager. Um, right. Right. So how do you suggest that they find all of this information out? Is it that they go to ASCAP or BMI or, or someone like that yeah. or, or hire a lawyer? Well, ASCAP, or? Yeah. I think nowadays you have, we, we have the internet now is just an amazing resource for information. And, you know, I think uh, sound change, sound exchange is a great organization too. So you could go to their, um, their knowledge base, uh, basically like any company and read about it. You can look up any information uh, about collecting royalties on a performance level through through the internet and you could find out amazing stuff and then we'll actually even show you tell you where you can reach out to to find your money i mean i think that you know in my case you know for for other you know parts of the world i hire somebody there's a company called premier music um music out of toronto um that i use for collecting money for me and in, in other areas uh gino uh i can't even pronounce his last name but that's a great company that i i met through a friend of mine that also worked with a band for many years that one day he actually turned me on to him he said dave i noticed that you've done this that and a bunch of different work he goes i bet you there's money floating around for you somewhere and, and then i got in touch with uh uh, uh premier music and they basically found it it took a little while but you know they do amazing work for me mm -hmm. yeah the um the interesting thing I always hear is that you know, people are like, well, I, I just want to concentrate on, on the art and I just want to concentrate on making music and I don't want to concentrate on, on all that business stuff. And I'm like, you gotta, then you better find someone yes. to, yeah. who is worried You're about right, the money Nick. because if not, yeah. yeah, you'll be bitter yeah, <laughs> and broke. You'll be a bitter man, uh, a bitter and broke. I mean, look, you know, that's what I said. Like, you know, there's a certain kind of, you know, doing what we do, because I know you, you, you do, you know, you're a drummer, you've been in a band, you've done successful things with your band, but there's that business side that sometimes is a little uncomfortable, puts us in the, that little gray area. It's really important to address. And um, and I think, you know, that is something that um, I've tried to, I have a son, I've talked to him about it. I have younger uh musicians that I tried to mentor in that way to tell them, look, I know it's not the best place to be, but these are things that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't, you're correct. You know, you'll find yourself in a position uh, where you're going like, you know, did I, uh, you know, you think you're doing the right thing, but really you're asking the question, um, 
is the right thing to do. You got to ask the questions. Right. Right. Because I, I, someone, someone's getting the money. <laughs> someone is getting the money, and I always say, like, right. "Hey, if you don't, if you don't want the money, I'll take it." You know, like I have, I'm, I'm not bashful about, uh, you know, about money. You know, I don't and think try to be, and try to be creative. Try to be creative when you're feeling that kind of angst. It's not good. Right. You know, it's right. not a great thing. You know, I right. mean, uh, uh, in every autobiography I read, like I just said, I was just your Kenny's book. That issue comes up and Kenny found out later in the game. Actually, he went back because they the small faces made such great records and they were still putting them out. Like all these records are still coming out. And Kenny played drums on all these records. Yeah. He said he didn't know what he was doing. But then he went back and he said, OK, well, who owns it? And he went. And, but, you know, it takes a little legwork. But that stuff, I think, is very if you value the work you did in your lifetime as an artist, it's worth checking out. I, I agree. I mean, if you were, you know, if yeah. you were a plumber, you wouldn't go and fix someone's toilet and then be like, ah, I'm, I'm not really going to ask for any money. Exactly. Exactly, man. It's like, you're, you're and it's so unfair sometimes, like, and because, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of artists that like to play that, like, hey, listen, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm making this record and I don't have much, you know, look, I do favors for my pals all the time. But there's always that business side of it that you have to address. You know, what's the budget? How can I help you about it? Bing, let's make it work so there are no resentments at the end of the deal. Right. But at the same time, these are all issues that, um, you know, look, again, you know, uh, it, it's been, um, I'm looking for the right world. Uh, 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 a lot of artists have taken that, you know, are the admin person that have taken advantage of that. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you got to protect yeah. yourself and you have to, you got to, like I said, you, I think you either got to do it yourself or find someone who's willing to do it, but you can't be bashful or, or ashamed to say, Hey no. man, you know, like I need to get, I need to get paid for the session or, or yeah. it's time and talent, right? You spend all these years yeah. developing your talent and time, and then you're going to put that time and talent into someone's creative project and you should be compensated for it. You shouldn't be embarrassed yes. about charging yeah, for your I'm work. Not. Yeah, you're right. And look, you know, you brought up that thing, you know, there's always somebody willing to jump into your spot because it's not many people, you know, uh, but I think there's an appropriate way to handle that. And and then again, if somebody's willing to like chop you off by the knees like that, he's not worth working or she's not worth working for anyway. And that's eventually going to happen. So you might as well find out early on how that's going to go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. So most people do the right thing when it comes down to it. Yeah. That's what I always say. I'm like, the more, you know, the older I get, the more I realize that most people are just genuinely good people. Yeah. You no know? question. And once in a while, they you don't get even a, know. Once in a while, you get a bad apple, but like, but yeah. most people, you know, even in the industry, like most people I run right. into are, are good people, you know? Yeah. If my, not, they my get, experience as well. They get weeded out quickly, right? They do. They do. They now, do. So you'd mentioned you know, being a lifer and you've, you've been doing this for a really long time. What has, what has been the thing that is one kept you motivated to grow and, and what has that process been like? How are you continuing yeah. to, to grow and get better and, and to keep yeah. an open mind? Because you've, you've seen a lot of changes in the industry over the years, a lot of yeah. changes in the way that people play, the way that records are recorded, the way that touring works, right. the way that the financials happen. Like, how do you continue to, to, to grow uh, throughout going. your entire yeah. career. Yeah. Well, I think that it's always like to challenge yourself, you know, I mean, for, in my case, you know, I, I had, look, there's the, the inevitable with, especially drumming. I mean, you know, there's some physical challenges that I experienced that I didn't see coming. Like I had to have a hip replacement over about seven years ago. I was playing my drums and active and I never thought I would hurt myself that way. And I had to have my left hip replaced wow. and, you know, the hearing and, you know, just watching changes in music. And if you're lucky, you know, you get, a, 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 you know, I, I mentioned Germany for us. I mean, we, they, they've embraced the Hooters for say, like, it's been unbelievable. So we have a, 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 a place where we can go tour for months on end and play great festivals. And, and then we have our places uh, around some places in the States. Uh, we're doing a great festival in, in, in Cancun, Mexico this year in the fall. Um, and um, so what, what keeps me going is the fact that I know that I got to keep myself physically and mentally in a position to pull off what I want to do. I have a certain amount of ego that keeps me going mm -hmm. that I don't want to look like a fool. And I, I, I happen to just love 
drumming. I love drummers, man. I got to say, I'm a big fan of drummers and I love music. And then, you know, I play some guitar. I've started writing some music on my own. And um, I'm starting a little record company with a friend of mine that uh, which I, I did in the 90s, but I'm going to do it again because, you know, with a little, with a little bit of backing behind me this time. And I've always embraced the change. Mm-hmm. I kind of always thought, OK, and I always here's the thing too, Nick, the change is inevitable. So I always know it's going to come. And then you're and, and so I, I was somehow mentally prepare myself for that. So it's kind of got me it's got me through. Um, you know, look, even with the Hooters at one point, since we all had kids, there was a point where I thought it was done and we'd never do it again. Oh, we took seven years off from touring and playing. And then we, we came back and then we got busy as ever. Well, I never, th- I didn't think that would happen. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think we'll probably play maybe 50 or so dates with the Hooters alone this year, maybe more. Nice. Um, and then I, I put together a project of my own called David Oskin is in the pocket, which I, where I, I pay homage to the songs of Philadelphia and I get to play with a bunch of musicians that I normally don't play with. Uh, they've been in bands that I've always admired. So I pulled them in to do sessions and create a video. I get a little website called songs in um, where I, you know, people can go and get a little history lesson on songs. And that has been something that's been cool. And I've been teaching a little bit too, trying to give back, you know, I, mm-hmm. a couple of days a week I teach at a school and that's been a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, that's what motivates me, you know, and I'm always listening. I'm, you know, I like Spotify. I like to be able to hear what's new. Um, and YouTube has been cool because I've been kind of going back and checking out videos of like even the stuff that I, I mean, I've been playing long enough that I can go back and look at the old days and go, wow, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Or that was terrible. And uh, I'd say, I wish I could do without some of the hairdos, um, <laughs> but what are you going to do? You know? Uh, and then look, you know, I, I get to do festivals with some of the greatest, like, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, Vinnie Kaluta, who I can't say is a, 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 a friend of mine, but we opened for Sting. So there was nothing greater than sharing a drum pad and Vinnie Catalina warming up before you play. Yeah. <laughs> so there's things in my lifetime that I've got the experience that no one has ever had. It's super cool. And uh, um, so that motivates me to try to keep on feeling like when you're playing, at least you feel like you're relevant. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the key. Yeah, that makes you sense. Know, you got to believe in what you got to believe in what you're doing. Man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and uh, uh, you know, looking back uh, or, or doing a lot of these interviews and and just sort of the overall landscape, not only in music, but just like the things that I'm interested in, you know, like uh, looking at business or music business yeah. and, and, and music as a, as a whole. To me, the people who have been able to continue to work, continue to uh, continue to thrive are the people who are willing to adapt and change. And if they're, yes. and if they're not no adapting, doubt. like companies that don't adapt go out of business you know yeah, musicians you who can't to. adapt don't get hired anymore bands that yeah. don't adapt yeah. don't get yeah. don't play shows anymore um, right right I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing that i experienced that was uh quite daunting and um and i had to adapt um as we get older my band especially things had to become more consistent and look, we make records. I love playing to a click track when I'm playing in the studio. And mm-hmm. there's nothing unusual about that. You know, you do that. So about three years ago, um, you know, as the band, uh, especially as, you know, I hate to blame age on this, but, you know, you're playing uh, maybe four nights a week on the road and you need more consistency. And I, I, what I'm talking about is like playing with a click. I use a Roland SPDSX. And I have all the tracks, all the clicks, um, uh, tempos are all in that SPDSX because you can set up a little kit change. And, um, you know, I use a click a lot in the studio, but it was a whole different thing when you start using it in live performances. Because, one, there's guys in the band that don't want to use it because they want to be free and feel what they're doing. So the first year that I did it, it was really, really tough because I felt like, you know, I wasn't feeling loose enough and I, and I found myself playing tight. It was just not a great experience, but it took a little while to get used to that. Now, um, you know, it took a while, but saying so the guys are using it as well. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I had to learn to embrace 
and now I enjoy it. You know, it's like uh, something that, um, uh, you know, when you're tired and you're, you're, you're a little off, when you hear where that click is, you know, okay, that's the tempo. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's, that's something that, um, it's different. You know, you, you know, one guy in particular in my band, he, 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 he gets in front. It's like a, there's a threshold of maybe after it's about a thousand people, something happens to his body chemistry. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> dude, where are you going, man? Come on back. I know you've been doing this a long time, but hold your horses, baby. And, uh, so, but that was something that mentally, uh, you know, it made me think about golfers, especially Tiger Woods playing golf and making a putt in front of like thousands of people in the yeah. gallery. It's a mental process. So, Playing drums, as much as it is, you know, it's physical, it's mental, it's, you're always growing. Now, that was something that was a real, for me, um, and I wrote about it in Modern Drummer. That I, I did a blog about it once, where I was like, I, I nearly wanted to quit because I wasn't having fun anymore. And I was, was going to stick to, like, you know, going to the studio and that, but, but it came, and finally, one day, it was like, oh, bring it on. And You were uh, saying you wanted I, to quit, I, what, playing live or touring? Yeah, yeah, I really did. I, I really was thinking about it because it wasn't fun. I felt like I was the, being the guy that was, you know, held responsible for that. And and um, it, 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 but as soon as I said it, things changed for me. It was like, oh, OK, you know, like and, and then at times, you know, some of the guys that were leaning towards some work, he said, hey, maybe let's not go with that because they like the little looseness. And now I can play loose with it. And um it happened pretty quickly, but it was one tour we did years ago where I had to get used to it. And um, if you hear our songs and we dance, they're like rockers, you know. And so um, uh, but I, I embrace it and I love it now. I do. I really love it. Nice. Yeah, I, I guess once you, you know, you do a thing for a long enough time and then you have to start doing this other thing in the beginning. There's some yeah. growing pains that go around. Then it becomes a challenge, right? Oh, and then you say, yeah. how can yeah. I play well? around this right. click and and exactly. let it be your friend instead of being your right. enemy exactly yeah that you you nailed it and that's that's the absolute truth and now it's like he's my he's like my drum tech my click it's like he's with right. me all the time yeah like, i love it you know so i uh, you know that's one thing I, i'm gonna tell you too I, i'll tell you you know i use a porter and davis do you know you know about the company porter and davis yeah yeah they make the uh the, yeah, the seats I, that I, I, that you can feel I, the bass I, drum I like that. I I they I used one on tour a few years ago, and I and I like it. I like Dill. I think they're always trying to improve the product, and I think that kind of tightens things up as well. And I, I have two of those, and I keep one on the road too that I really like. So I'm a fan. I'm a fan of stuff like that. I didn't like the old Thumper because it felt like there was latency, but the new one feels like they've really dialed it in, and they're always working on the technology. So again, you know, there's so many things that can help you be a better player live and help you enjoy the process that are out there. If you're willing to check it out. And, and, and again, you know, you have to be, uh, it's sometimes it's a process. You have to get in there and feel it out and make it work for you. Mm -hmm. So uh, touching on the, the Porter and Davies thing. Uh, so it, it's just the kick drum, right? It's connected to the kick drum. Yeah, but I can feel like they've made it. They, they have a few, um, they have the uh, the Gixter, I think, which is a ch uh, is a more inexpensive one. Then they have the BC two, and they they came out the latest one. It's the TD. I think it's called the TD six. Excuse me, Dill, if you hear this, but it's worked with the guy that's working the uh, the console, the monitor mixer, mm -hmm. and uh, the monitor console. And you can actually feel the snare on the tom. It's really amazing. I mean, I, I was playing something recently where it was it, I could actually when I was hitting the tom and the snare, I could feel I was doing a session. And I felt it. it was like, wow, this and is that's pretty just, amazing. And that's to help you, I guess, just like internalize the, the music yeah, a little bit better. Yeah. 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 Carmine, Carmine Rojas used to say, a bass player played with David Bowie, which because I want to feel the wind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I've got like the Bowie, but that was the days of speakers, you know, your hair mm -hmm. would be blowing to sit loud. But um, that is a case where you want to be completely immersed into your music. And I think that's the idea behind Porter and Davies. It's gotcha. really cool. Yeah, I, I love I, that comp. I've messed around with them at Nam. I've never actually played them. Uh, so, oh, oh, like, I've never played them live. Deal. You know. Oh well, you know what? You gotta have to, man. It's really cool. I, I should. I'm gonna introduce you to them. It's very cool. I should. Very cool. Just so everyone knows, this was not planned. This is not a commercial that no. that David and I planned. No, 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 no. I'm. Hey, look, you know, I guess. It's important to let, you know, like I play anything I use, I use because I like, you know, like, mm -hmm. you know, 
I got to tell you an interesting story. We mentioned Live Aid. And I've been fortunate to play some pretty huge festivals. I played Live Aid, open for Roger Waters at the Wall, Amnesty International. But I remember playing <clears throat> Live Aid, and I was playing. <laughs> you can relate to this. I had Pisces symbols, and I had Zoljan symbols. All, all, it was something that I was, um, uh, um, you know, it was like what I could afford that week, what was on sale. Right. And then Doug Swan, who was at Zildjian at the time, after, after Live Aid, he was behind me, said, Hey, how would you like to be with Zildjian? I went, oh, are you kidding me? I was like, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, I've been with them since, and they've been wonderful to me. So, I mean, they sent me this really nice uh, uh, plaque, like after I was at 30 years of being with the company. So That's they've awesome. always been just brilliant. Oh, always great. And every, the product is wonderful and they sound great and always, you know, and, but there's so many great, you know, there's other companies make great stuff out there yeah i just i think they seem to kind of move along with the time with the trend and and try new things but their quality is always great yeah it's am what's that as are my drums i play uh, dw i like the, the garrison and john are great mm -hmm. yeah for sure um the the interesting thing to me is that everything now it, it like the the bar has been raised across oh. all every, like everyone you know it's seeming like everyone makes great symbols everyone makes great sounding drums yeah. you know the hardware yeah. is good i mean i feel right. like years ago like you know even some of the drumsticks you would get were bananas and oh. you know oh, they're wobbling always. and everything terrible now you, yeah hey did you nick I, I there's a company out of bucks county i i have a set of the drums and they've made me they make great snare drums bucks county drum company they're out of bucks county i'm familiar they with them Yep. They make awesome sounding drums. Yeah. Incredible. Custom made. It's like amazing. There's so many companies out there, but they, they made me a set and I'm truly happy with it. And again, you're right. There's so much product out there and the level of competition is so great that everybody has to make something just a little better. So yep. sticks have become consistent. Yeah. Yeah. There's a company, there's another company in Philly. I don't even know if they're around anymore called mass. I think they're called Mastercraft drums. MCD. I don't, They're from Philadelphia. Oh, wow. Uh oh. Yeah. Uh, no, I, 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 yeah. It's, you know, a lot of guys get in that space. It's such a difficult space to be in. Yeah. Because there's so much competition and, you know, the biggies kind of take over. And, you know, those, there used to be a lot of mom and pop stores, but there aren't anymore. You know, it's like uh, the chains always kind of take over. And that's really unfortunate because. Yeah. My drum teacher owned a modern drum shop in New York, Joe Casadas, and I used to go to his shop, and you could find all kinds of cool new things there. And you know, uh, there, there—that's the thing that I feel bad about younger drummers because there's not as many. And when you find one nowadays, you want to embrace that baby. Yep, there's a there's a cool uh, drum shop in Philly. It's just called Philly Drum Philly yes. Drum and yeah, Percussion or something. Great, yeah, it's a great, great shop. Drum shop, great shop. So what is your, what's your advice for people who are coming up now in the industry? What do you see uh, that, that you would, or what, you know, based on the experiences that you have, what would you yeah. warn people of or advise people or, or yeah. some nuggets of wisdom you can share? I, I, here's what I, I, I'll tell you what I tell my, my son. I said, let Sam learn to drive the ship, you know, learn everything you can learn. I know you can, there's only so many hours in the day, but nowadays where recording has become such a, um, I mean, look at Billie Eilish. She recorded a record in her in her room. With I know. Her brother. I know. Massive. So and so, I, I was told him. I said, you know, try to be as much control of what you have as possible. Because when you have somebody else making your decisions, and it's always tough when you. And, and look, I'm a band guy. I love bands, and, and but you know, there's usually one guy or two people kind of driving that ship, and that's always try to maybe you have to be like a hard evaluation. You know, do I want to get on board if I don't have control? And then there's a trust level. So I think that it's really important that even if you're involved with something like that, just learn as much as you can learn about the production side of it. Be the best drummer you can be. Really just get it. If you're going to get into it, you know, get into it. And we talked about it a lot on this podcast. The business side is something not to be ignored. It's something that, you know, sometimes isn't all that comfortable and it doesn't need to be a, an adversarial situation. It has to be just a frank discussion on like, where do you fall in, especially drummers, because drummers create so much of the vibe of music that comes out today. And then all of a sudden you say, well, 
you didn't really didn't write the melody or you didn't write the words or you're going, well, wait a minute, but I came up with the beat. <laughs> you right. know? I mean, that, that was always my argument with all you zombies. I'm going, Hey, this beat's pretty cool. <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, I mean that, you know, but I, I, in that case, I didn't get publishing on that. That was Robin Eric's, but and got, and, got, and they and they're entitled to it. The thing of it is, is that, you know, these are things that I think are really important that sometimes managers that take over the band don't want the guy in the band to ask the questions, but I think the questions must be asked. And yeah. if they're not willing to answer and then say, you know, you got to be willing to cut loose, cut mm -hmm. loose, man. You have to, yep. you know, always easier said than done. It is, it is, it is. Or, and, and the other side of it, the only thing I would, I would add into what you're saying is if you don't want to have those conversations, then have someone who is okay with, yes. get, get someone who's okay with having yeah. those conversations. Right. Exactly. And I think it's, it, you, you, you will have a happier life if you do that. I agree. Yeah, for I sure. Agree. So if people want to keep an eye on what you're doing, follow up with, with, uh, you know, seeing you live or, or, you know, or coming to see in the pocket or the Hooters or, or whatever, yeah. where's the best place they yeah. can find you? Well, uh, the Hooters have a website it's called hootersmusic.com, hootersmusic.com. And then I have a website that is, uh, songsinthepocket.org. Um, and you know, I'm kind of, we work in daveudrums.com, whereas it's my session site. I, um, my guys are kind of setting it up, um, people could hire me to do a session there. And I had that all going with a bug ticket where they could tell me what to do. And you know, um, I have a small, you know, I, I do Twitter and Dave Ossikin and I think it's D Ossikin and U O S I K K I N E N. You'll never remember that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll link, we'll link up to it in the show notes. Yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, of course I'm on Facebook and all that, but, um, and then I, you know, I, I love this space that you're in a podcast. I do a podcast as well with my buddy. Um, it's called David Oskin's in the pocket, which I hope you'll help me with. And, uh, we're, we're just moving forward. And, uh, I, I embrace all the opportunities that are out there for old and younger musicians. I think that's smart. I, th I, yeah. I think that there's a lot of, uh, I think that a lot of times people don't, people can't figure out why, you know, why things aren't working for them or why, uh, they may be struggling. And, and then you realize the people who aren't are the people who are out there, like you said, taking every opportunity that comes, you know, yeah. and obviously you want to be selective, but like taking the opportunity, saying yes to a lot of things, embracing change, being able to, uh, being able to sort of pivot when you need to and not just getting, you know, stuck Locked in your down. ways and. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of fear out there. You know, the internet scares people. Right. You know, I got to tell you, my, my father, uh, immigrant from Finland, dropped out of school when he was 13 to fight the Russians <laughs> when he was Crazy. a young kid. I'm not kidding. And he came over to America. He was the first one in our family to embrace online banking, all the digital stuff. My dad was unbelievable. He's rested. God rest in, rest in peace, my father. But he was unbelievable. So he was really pretty fearless with it, but there's a lot of people who are afraid when they hear like, you know, online theft and information and all that stuff like that. I have friends that will not go near social media because they're afraid somebody's going to say something negative to them. Right. And it's if you're afraid of that, you know, but we live in a world where social media is, is just a part of what we got. Yep. Yep. And you can, you, I, I say it all the time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great things. I mean, like my entire business is run online, you know, so. Oh, no question. Yeah. yeah. So I have, yeah, uh, I but then, you know, I think you should use it for the good and, and not get, uh, not get bogged down by the, by the bad. Cause I think it's, it's, yeah. it's less than 1% oh, of it is bad. So. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. I agree. Well, David, I want to thank you one for, uh, for taking the time to chat. And as I mentioned it's in our real pleasure. My pleasure. pleasure. And as I mentioned early, uh, or, you know, in our first emails that the, the Hooters are near and dear to my heart, you know, hometown, uh, hometown band. Yeah. So to be able to sit down and chat with you after all these yeah. years of, of listening to you guys and knowing who you guys were, it, it's been great. I appreciate you. Hey, real quick. Did you ever see the episode of the Goldbergs that we did? No. <laughs> you should look it up. The, the Hooters, we flew out to, uh, there's a, what theater is it? There's a great theater out in LA off of uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And we did an episode. Um, it's not the Pantages. It's the Wiltern. The Wiltern. And we went out there. Yeah. And we, we filmed a, an episode and we're just a little bit, but it's so funny at the very end, they wanted us to look like it was 1980. The wig flies off my head. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to watch. That's, that's, a very, that's yeah, such a good show. It's Philadelphia, Jenkintown, man. You yeah. know what I mean? 
I love it. I love it. Hey, I'm looking forward to hearing the, uh, you know, hearing more of your podcasts. And it was a real pleasure, man. And, uh, you know, I was talking to another Philadelphian that's living out in California that's gone a little bit of the same path I have, you know, so it's very cool. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate you taking the time to chat and uh, I'll be talking to you soon. All right, Nick. All right. Thanks, David. Good day. There you have it, the one and only David Wasikinen, and you can find the show notes by going to drummersresource.com forward slash session 541. If you dig the podcast, leave a rating, leave a review. You can do that on iTunes. Also, if there's someone in particular that you want to see on the show or hear on the show, I should say, shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com. And until the next episode, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll be talking to you soon. Drummer's Resource is produced by Revoice Media. Executive producer Nick Ruffini, that's me. Edited by Justin Thomas. Video editing by Tomas Shannon. And graphic design by Catherine Wade. For more music and entertainment podcasts, be sure to check out revoicemedia.com. Peace.